I must say I'm really uh, delighted to be here. I'm very excited to, uh, to be with you and to see all of these uh, uh, faces, uh, young, uh, bright scientists, probably many of you. Um, and it's uh, actually, I've, I've been immediately charmed uh, walking in here. Um, well, first, Corey said uh, something about uh, being always right. We, we were joking about creating some Thomistic Institute swag, as one of our uh, young employees calls it. Um, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, something like that. And one of the ideas was to put a, a picture of uh, a famous early 20th century Dominican, uh, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, who was a, um, he was kind of a hardline Dominican theologian with the caption, uh, because sometimes you're always right, something <laughs> like that. So um, we, we decided, you know, not to go that way. But, uh, you know, it's great to be here. And actually, immediately walking in the room, I was, I was uh, charmed by the blackboards, um, because in my institution we no longer have blackboards, it's whiteboards and inferior technology. This is definitely more reliable. Uh, and then on top of that we have the, the very handsome cursive script up here, which is also a little retro, but um, I challenge any of you to be more retro than the guy wearing vintage 13th century <laughs> clothing, handmade, I might add. Just last night I I literally hand sewed a patch on my habit because I had a tear. It's hard to get a habit. You have to hand make them. Um, but that's not why I'm here. So the illusion of conflict, science uh, and faith. Uh, this is a really central topic uh, for our age. And it's also one that um, we take to heart at, in the Dominican order and um, as uh, Thomas and for the Thomistic Institute. Thomistic Institute takes its name from Thomas Aquinas. So Thomas Aquinas was a great medieval philosopher and theologian. He was a member of the Dominican order. He's one of the greats in Western history. Um, and he has a lot to say, actually, on the issue of faith and science, surprisingly, uh, because he himself was no stranger to experimental science. Now, that's kind of a controversial thing to say, but I think you can substantiate it uh, he started with a kind of elite education. He was from a, a noble family, actually, in Italy. He was sent to study with the Benedictines at Monte Cassino as a, as a young boy. So he's basically at, at a, it was kind of the equivalent of boarding school. He was then sent off to the university in Naples um, when he was in his uh, probably about 16 and met the Dominicans and decided to enter this brand new order, which was very controversial. His family was really angry about it, uh, so angry that his parents sent two of his brothers to kidnap him, which they did by force, and held him prisoner in the family castle for a year to try and persuade him not to become a Dominican. But he was so determined that they finally relented, and he went off to study in Cologne, at the university that had just been founded by Albert the Great. Now, Albert the Great, if you know anything about uh, the history of medieval science, was an early sort of experimental scientist and uh, took very seriously the rediscovery of the works of Aristotle and a recovery of an attempt to uh, have a real experimental, uh, well, they would have called it a philosophy of nature. So um, Aquinas actually did have an exposure to what was the current um, kind of cutting edge of scientific reflection in his own age. And he has some very interesting theological uh, and, and philosophical, theoretical reflections about that. 
But we don't want to just go back to the 13th century. We want to address this question as it stands today. So um, I think we can begin by clarifying the problem. What is the illusion of conflict between science and empirical science and faith today? There are lots of ways that we could approach this, but what I've tried to do is sort of group under four headings the typical objections that you will hear posed on this score. So here's the first grouping, and it's probably the easiest to deal with. It's a claim that science has basically disproved the Bible because there are passages in the Bible that are uh, contrary to, for example, Big Bang cosmology or to uh, a theory of evolution, uh, like the creation account found in Genesis. Okay, so that would be one uh, fairly simplistic way to oppose science and faith. But you do hear a fair amount. Okay, so a second grouping, I mean, we could, we could add more claims to that, that first category, but that's the kind of essential claim. The Bible is unreliable, non-scientific, and science has basically invalidated a lot of things you find in it. Okay, second claim, second group of claims, would say something along these lines, that science can, or in theory could, explain everything that religion tries to account for. So, for example, um, one might make the claim that the whole cosmos is simply a kind of indeterminate uh, chaos or randomness out of which apparent order has emerged, and that once you understand this dynamic, you can, you can basically explain uh, most everything. Or uh, perhaps the, the claim of some um, proponents of a, of a strong neo-Darwinian uh, evolutionary theory that you can account for all the diverse orders of organic life, including human beings, by appealing to random genetic mutation and natural selection, something along those lines. And so, therefore, religious explanations are at best superfluous and at worst misleading or even they positively obscure or impede our advance in knowledge. Okay, so that would be a second category of claims. The third grouping of alleged conflicts goes something like this. Faith claims uh, that religion makes are limits to scientific inquiry, and they use non-scientific criteria to limit our knowledge of the truth. So if you are a real scientist, you should want to explore the science wherever it takes you, and religion is always getting in the way of that. Fourth, so fourth grouping. Because faith claims are empirically unverifiable, they simply don't count as claims about objective reality. They're, they're a kind of esoterica. I mean, you find them in the bookstore uh, under esoterica, basically. You know? It's something that is inherently subjective and maybe even a kind of sentimentalization. It's about uh, these unquantifiable feelings that you have. And the only thing that counts as real knowledge are claims that can be empirically verified by a, a scientific method. Okay, so how to show that these are only apparent conflicts? And I think that they are only apparent conflicts. So I have to start with a few disclaimers here, actually. First, as, as you uh, may know, I've uh, basically my CV shows that I've been in school a lot. You know, that doesn't uh, count for all that much, really. 
Um, and I'm not a scientist. My specialties are philosophy and theology, so I have degrees in philosophy and theology and law. I've, uh, I'm interested in science, and so I've uh, done a lot of reading, and I know a number of uh, serious scientists and have tried to have serious exchanges with them uh, about these um, questions, but I, I can't hold myself out as an authority on the scientific questions that will inevitably come up, so I'm sure I can learn a lot from many of the people in this room. Uh, so my, my place here is not to adjudicate scientific questions, but to try and contextualize those questions from the perspective, uh, from what you might say is a broader perspective. The second caveat that I'd throw out is that uh, if we wanted to go point by point through these four uh, illusions of conflict, we could uh, spend a lot of time getting down into the weeds. And I think what actually would be more helpful would be for me to discuss some fundamental principles, first about the relationship between faith and science, and secondly about the reasonableness of faith, kind of clearing up misconceptions about what we mean when we talk about faith. So my talk is going to have basically those two parts. So by means of this double inquiry, I hope to bring uh, to light the unique value of scientific inquiry in, uh, as it fits into a larger uh, set of questions. Um, in a way, I want to talk about how science can investigate the truth and how that fits in with other ways of knowing the universe and the truth. Okay, so um, the first part of my talk. Uh, what are some of the key principles that allow us to resolve some of the alleged conflicts or illusory conflicts between science and faith? So the first one, which I, I really don't even want to label number one, it's just kind of a preface uh, to number one, is about that, that first uh, apparent conflict. Does science disprove the Bible? Uh, this is a relatively easy one to deal with. Um, because uh, it generally involves a misunderstanding about the Bible and what the Bible is saying. So at least from a Catholic perspective, if we're going to talk, for example, about the creation accounts in Genesis, we don't read the creation accounts in Genesis, uh, and nor do we read many other texts in the Bible, as a historical account of a particular sequence of events. Now, certainly when we get into the New Testament, we do think that there are historically verifiable claims being made about actual events. But when we're talking about Genesis or the creation account, we don't read those texts as narrating uh, the way a historian would narrate or a scientist would narrate a series of events. It's not scientific literature about the origin of the cosmos or the origins of human life. It's a different kind of literature. When you pay attention to the literary genre, to what the what the author actually is really intending to say, it's intending to tell us something of a different kind, of a different order. It's a highly symbolic theological account that expresses deep truths about the origins of all things and of human beings. But it doesn't mean, for example, that there were literally six days in which the heavens and the earth were created. Uh, if you study biblical criticism, one of the things that you will learn is that, for example, the 
pagan cultures around ancient Israel worshipped things like the sun and the moon, which is why the creation account says that God created the sun and the moon. It's not because it's saying, well, on this particular day, he, did, he made these things. It's to say, we are not like the other pagan cultures that think that those are gods. They're not gods. They're creatures. They're created by God. Uh, it doesn't m- mean that there was a physical serpent telling a woman to eat the real fruit of an actual tree. One of, if you go back to the, even to the church fathers, 4th century AD, you can find famous church fathers saying things like, if you think that this is talking about an actual tree, you are an idiot in the way you are reading Genesis. That's not what it's about. Okay. So that's my prefatory point. Often these, those are illusions uh, that there's conflicts between Scripture. Uh, but now I'd like to turn to what is really the first principle. And this is a much more important principle. And I think you could label it something like this, the principle of God's transcendent primacy, or something like that. Another way of framing this, the way a well-known philosopher has put it, um, there is a a, a Judeo-Christian distinction between God and the world. So here it's helpful actually not to contrast Christianity with the contemporary modern secular viewpoint, but with the ancient pagan viewpoint. And it gives you a little better sense of where, because the contemporary secular viewpoint is in a way coming out of a Christian culture. It's often kind of post-Christian. And so it's, the contrasts are a little less clear. But if you go back and look at the contrast between Christianity and paganism in, in how they think about uh, what is divine, you learn something very helpful. And it's this, this distinction in the way that Christianity or Judeo-Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, began thinking about God. And since we have a chalkboard here, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to use it. So the, the pagan world, uh, or the pagan universe, you might say, if that is the universe, you have you know, uh, the earth, and you have you know, all kinds of creatures on the earth. I'm not going to do a good job drawing a horse, but you know, suppose that was a horse. <laughs> I guess a horse. That probably looks more like a chicken, doesn't it? A sheep? All right, well, you have some animal. So you have different uh, kinds of of creatures down here, you know, plants, trees, uh, animals, humans, and so forth. And the highest and noblest part of the universe in the pagan uh, mindset would be the gods. So you have up here, you have the gods. And they inhabit a kind of, uh, you know, celestial sphere. They uh, sometimes interact with the created world. Uh, and, but they are, they are the highest and the most noble part. But the key point here, the gods are a part of the universe. Now, the, the key distinction, what we could call the Judeo-Christian distinction, is the recognition that when we're talking about God, so the, the, the transcendent, the one transcendent God, we are no longer talking about something that is a part of the universe. God is not a part of the universe. 
but is the source of the universe. So when we compare God to the universe, in a way, we are talking about whole and part, but the whole is God. And the part is the universe which God is creating and sustaining in being. God, so, so the, this view is not just that God is not a part of the universe, as if he were separate from the universe, but rather that he is the source of the universe in an absolutely transcendent way as the first cause. This means that everything that we encounter in the universe is already related back to God, who is its first cause. So God does not interact with things in the world in the same way as things in the world interact with things in the world, or things in the universe, we could say. Okay, this is, this is a, a category shift, and it's often not the way we think. So it requires you to push your mind to transcend the categories of this world, to try and ascend by your mind to understand something of what we're talking about when we, when we speak about God as the transcendent cause of all. Here's another way to put it. We're accustomed to thinking of creation as a moment in time, like the first moment, the beginning of time. For Thomas Aquinas, however, creation is not a beginning point. It is not the beginning of time. Creation is a relation. Think about that. What kind of relation? It's a relation of radical ontological dependence of every creature on God the first cause. That means to be a creature in the world, in the universe, means to be radically dependent on a cause that is not part of the universe. So, to be a creature means to be caused, or to receive being, to have being, we could say, in a contingent way. Another way to put this is that the universe could possibly not have been in which case, God would have been all that is. Without any diminution of God, or of goodness, or of greatness, or even of being. Okay, this is really forces you to, to push your mind. If you wanted to translate this into an equation, I'm at MIT after all, so I feel like I need to write an equation on the work. If you wanted to translate this into an equation, it would go something like this. God plus the world, or I should say the universe. God plus the universe equals God. Creation adds nothing to God. God creates so that he can draw things that 
of themselves are not to share in what he has in absolute fullness that is to be. So Aquinas' deepest account of God, then, on a philosophical, his philosophical account of God, is that God is pure being, or absolute being. The word, the, the, the line, the famous line in Latin is ipsum esse subsistens, which is the verb to be, esse, to be itself subsisting. That means that God is absolutely. And every creature is in only a contingent way or a way that is received. It could possibly not be. So this is why, according to Aquinas, we have to think of God in a radically different way than we think of things in the universe, of creatures. God is the source of creaturely being. So he is the ground of the universe, and the universe, is, in a sense, is in God. But he is not simply in the universe, but is its, is its source and its origin. Okay, where does this take us with science, empirical science? It means that God cannot be investigated the same way that things in the universe can be investigated. He is not like the other beings in the universe. In fact, it would be a mistake to think that we could use the same word in the same sense, the exact same sense of God and creatures. So when we say being, even to say the word being with respect to God, there's an analogy going on there. It's not equivocation, but it's not precise a precise univocal use of the word, if, you, if, you're, if we have some philosophers uh, in the room. Um, it's an, an analogical <laughs> notion. Okay. I'm optimistic. Okay. So, this has fundamental uh, implications for how we think about God and the universe, and, and consequently how we think about empirical science and what it can do and not do. Like, what are its uh, riches and also its limitations? And this brings us to the second major principle. So the first principle was God is a transcendent, the, tran the, the primacy, the transcendent primacy of God. Okay, now the second principle, which flows from this Judeo-Christian distinction, which we can uh, label the distinction between first and second causes, or primary and secondary causality. This is another a philosophical distinction that flows from this understanding of God as not part of the universe. So I was just saying God is different in a way from everything in the universe. Uh, he's in a different order altogether from all other causes that we know. So he causes in a way differently than other things in the universe cause. Things in the universe act on each other. You know, the, the, the chicken or the sheep, whatever, acts on me. I mean, the, the chicken I had for lunch is becoming a part of me right now, right? Um, so it's in a certain way acting on me. Actually, I have beef, so maybe I should put 
orange on him. <laughs> make him make him cow. Um, okay, so creaturely causes act on, on each other within the world, and we can there's an intelligibility to that. But the way God acts as a cause of the whole universe is of a different order. So we give the label to that primary causality or first causality. That means that God causes the very being of the things in the universe, and he gives them their power to be a cause. So things can cause in the world. I can do something to the tree. I can cut it down, or the tree can fall on me and injure me or whatever. Those things can, can exercise their causality because God has created them and given them their essences and their power to cause. Creatures, uh, then, are real causes. They are real causes, and we call that secondary causality. That's not a diminished sense of causality. It's a very important sense of causality. And we can investigate it, and that's principally what uh, we do in empirical science, is investigate those secondary causes. But notice that we need to keep in mind the difference between a secondary cause and a first cause. Now, how does this uh, cash out? It not only cashes out with respect to what, what kind of investigations we can do, but also because it means that God gives a kind of stable autonomy to secondary causes. That means that when he creates the universe, he gives things a, a power to cause, that, and they have that power, and it's, it works in a stable way. So we really can investigate those relationships without ever threatening the principle that God is the cause of everything. Because he's the one who established that order in which uh, one thing uh, uh, causes another. Okay, so there, there are two errors that you commonly encounter in discussions about faith and science that, that misunderstand this distinction between primary and secondary causality. One error would be uh, the, the view that God acts immediately in all things. You hear this when you hear, say, certain types of um, readers of the Bible taking a fundamentalist reading of the Bible, and they want to defend the Bible against, say, the theory of evolution. And so they say, well, the theory of evolution, uh, you know, if it, we, we can't accept the theory of evolution because then it would mean that God did not create the different species of things. If we say that genetic mutation and natural selection causes the diversification of species, then what we mean by that, what we conclude by that is, therefore, God did not. And we don't want to say that, so we're going to negate that evolution is true. Do you see the error that's being made there from a Thomistic perspective? The error is thinking that God's causality is working on the same plane as creaturely causality. But that is not the case. So a, a Thomist has no problem saying that we can take absolutely seriously the causality of creatures, for example, in uh, evolutionary biology, so to account by you know, a very rich uh, account of how within the universe new species can come about. 
and say at the same time that God is the first cause ordering all of that. The second uh, error that you commonly run into along these lines is to say that God doesn't have any causal role in the universe and that if you have a good enough scientific theory that accounts for enough of the lines of causality within the universe, then you've explained everything and you don't need to appeal to God. Well, once again, from a Thomistic perspective, the error is thinking that God is working in the realm of created causes in the same way as other sorts of causes. But that's not the claim, actually. The claim is that God is acting on the world in a different way because he's, he's creating it and sustaining it in being at every moment. So creation is happening right now. God is sustaining us in being. Okay, so this gives rise to a third principle, which is the principle of, uh, that I'd label God's providence. That means that the universe is characterized by order. And, I mean, as scientists, certainly you know that and, and believe in that, that there is an intelligibility out there that we can, by our investigation, the use of our minds, we can discover some of that intelligibility. And, in fact, we can even turn it to our advantage. We can be in taking advantage of the intelligibility that we discover uh, in the service of our projects and ends. So, uh, from the Christian perspective, because God is the source of everything that is, he's also the source of that order. And he's able to account for that order, and in fact to guide everything, but to guide it in a way different than we would if we were just like the master scientist. So, it's not a view that God is the highest and most perfect um, physicist. Uh, Aquinas does not think of God in that way. Um, another uh, point that I should add before I, before I move on here is that for Aquinas, God does not just govern the world by acts of his power or of his will, but God is, is an, a mind, the mind of the universe. So he has a plan according to which he acts in the world. Creation follows a kind of eternal plan in the mind of God. And so the causality of God is exercised according to that plan, that order, which is first of all in the mind of God. So the order that we then find in the world is a reflection of the order that we find in God. Okay. Now, I'd like to uh, pose an objection to this uh, view, maybe an objection that some of you are thinking. Um, how is this different from thinking of God as just like a really perfect physicist? Think of um, the theory of Laplace. The, the idea is if you know all of the uh, laws and forces that are going to be working in a system, and you can know perfectly all of the initial conditions of that system, and you had a powerful enough computer or something like that, you could run all the calculations and you could determine what some future state uh, will be. So it's a kind of raw determinism. 
that everything is already set up. We, don't, we aren't able to do that yet because we don't know enough. But if we really knew enough, we would be able to figure out all of the future uh, states. Is this Aquinas' view of God's providence, for example, or the way God orders the world? No, it's not. Uh, why? What's, what's wrong with this idea? It's, once again, to think of God in too worldly a way, as if God's working out of things were like our working out of things. But in fact, God's way of causing things is of a much higher order. And here we can add uh, a set of distinctions about the types of secondary causes that you find in the world. This is also very helpful for understanding divine providence and the place of indeterminism in the universe, which Aquinas thinks there really is a kind of indetermination within the universe. So uh, what are the sorts of causes that you find within secondary causality? Um, Aquinas uh, thinks that, there, that we can distinguish at least three, or we're, we might distinguish it into, into four. The, the first set are what he calls uh, per se causes. Those are causes, that's probably the first thing we think about when we think about, um, say, in physics, talking about causality. Uh, causes that bring about a particular result always or for the most part. So one billiard ball strikes another and we know how the, the second ball is going to react or going to, going to move. Uh, or even in the realm of biology, uh, you have, say, an aardvark, an aardvark egg and an aardvark sperm, and the sperm fertilizes the egg and a new individual organism a new aardvark uh, begins to be, right? Um, okay, so that's in the line of per se causes. Those causes operate in a reliable way. They operate according to their own internal intelligibility. You can kind of see their directedness, and you can run them forward and run them back and sort of understand the causal chain. <coughs> but there's a second category, which Aquinas calls per accidents. And this is the classic uh, place where you find discussions of chance. So the idea behind per accidents causes is that you have different lines of causality which have their own directedness and when they intersect they can produce a new result which neither line of itself could have accounted for. So suppose the just before the aardvark sperm uh, fertilizes the aardvark egg, uh, there's a, a dose of radiation that radiates the egg, or, or maybe just as it's being uh, fertilized. Okay, what will result from that? You have sort of two intersecting lines of causality. There's a source of radiation, and then there's the fertilization of the, the sperm and the egg, um, and something different will result. It may not be an aardvark. It might be that this organism can't live, and so it, it doesn't develop. It might be that there are some uh, genetic defects. Maybe there would even be genetic advantages that come to be from this intersection of two lines of causality. 
Okay, so there you have two per se causes that intersect and produce a per accidens cause. It's a way of understanding how you can get uh, a kind of chance happenings in a world where there are uh, already determined per se lines of causality. Okay, now, the third category, and this is where it really gets interesting. Aquinas also thinks that there are contingent causes that are really contingent. And here, he's talking about things that are underdetermined. So you can't simply predict them. But it doesn't mean that they are not real causes or that there is not an explanation for why they result in a particular result. So to use just a very simple example, you uh, give your dog his favorite toy and then uh, a rabbit runs by or a cat runs by and he has to decide. I mean, he will either chase after the cat and go barking at the cat or he'll be distracted by the toy. And it's not easy to predict exactly what he's going to do. And you might be able to run it several times and, and come up with different results. There's a kind of contingency there. Now, if we wanted to go into the realm of quantum mechanics, we might find another sort of indeterminacy where we have a hard time figuring out the lines of causality. And it seems like there is, uh, at, a, at a very deep level, some underdetermined or indeterminate uh, causality happening there, a real contingent cause. But there's a, an even more fundamental category, which is sort of underneath this 3A, and that is human freedom. So Aquinas really thinks that you and I are causes, and we are causes in a different way than a billiard ball is a cause, because we are causes by our own free choices, which he thinks are really free, which means they are not determined in advance. That causality is definitely uh, underdetermined, and it can produce unpredictable results. You know, you may not be able to predict how your roommate is going to react to uh, the 10th time you leave the dishes unwashed in the sink. Um, you know, one time you say, I don't understand it. She just blew up. I couldn't have predicted it. <laughs> well, maybe you could predict that. <laughs> For Aquinas, God can even act within our freedom without doing violence to the free choices that we make. That is because of the kind of cause God is. God is a cause of a higher order. If any other creature tries to force my will to do something, it can only make me do something by violence by coercing me. God can move me to do something freely because he is the very source of my will. He can act within, whereas other creatures can only act from outside. So God is not like a physical cause, nor is he like a, a perfect physicist. He's acting on a higher level in a different order, and his knowledge of causes includes 
knowledge not only of the per se causes, we have knowledge of per se causes, like the billiard balls. We have a harder time accounting for all the per accidents causes, just because there are so many variables bouncing around. But we have a really hard time with contingent causes and free causes. We really don't, we really aren't able to uh, completely forecast them. But God does have a knowledge of those things because he is the, the source of their very being. Okay, the final point that I'm going to make about science and philosophy, the, the sort of thing that you are doing in science, what you are studying, is different from what a Thomist would call the formality or the formal object of what you are studying in philosophy or theology. Which is not to say that these, it's not to sort of rank these things according to a hierarchy, it's just to say they're looking into different things. So a simple example illustrates this. A physicist may be able to build a nuclear bomb, but he can't answer as a physicist whether using the bomb in these particular circumstances is morally justified or is morally evil. There is no empirically verifiable experiment you can run to detect the justice of the use of a nuclear bomb in this case or that case. It's a different sort of question, a different sort of inquiry. But it's a real inquiry, and it's an important inquiry, and it's not just an arbitrary inquiry. It's one that's really based on reason, and it requires one to engage in a different sort of thinking that is namely philosophical or theological perhaps, but not based on, uh, simply based on empirical observation. Okay, if we want to move into the realm of theology, uh, we, can, we can study things, you can study your roommates in various ways, right? According to the classic division of the sciences for Thomas Aquinas, he would say you could study your roommate as a physical object, like as throwable. <laughs> and that would be to study your roommate in the domain of physics, you can study your roommate in terms of his or her shape. I don't know what shape your roommate is in. Is your roommate in good shape or bad shape? That's geometry to study your roommate, the shape of your roommate. I mean, you know what I'm talking about here. You can, you can study your roommate, uh, just you can abstract from all matter and just study your roommate in terms of mathematical objects. You can just quantify uh, something and study some measure of quantity there. You can study your roommate as a moral actor. You can study your roommate as made in the image of God, as uh, living in communion with God. You can, I mean, we can even study Jesus this way. When we study Jesus, we can, we can study his humanity. We can study the history of his life. If he were here, we could run a genetic test on him. We could analyze his, uh, you know, his hair or his blood type or whatever. But there is no test we could do that would detect his divinity. So to study the divinity of Christ is a different kind of inquiry. It's an inquiry that requires us to use a different field of inquiry, and that is the field of, of theology. So in fact, these are not in competition to study Jesus uh, as a, a subject in history 
or as a biological organism and to study him as the son of God. It's different. And in the same way, faith or the science of faith, which is theology, operates in a different domain. Okay, a few final remarks. This is now uh, part two of my talk, and I've gone on for a long time here, so I don't want to, I will try to do this just very quickly, which is to make, uh, in brief, uh, a case for why faith is reasonable. Now, I put it that way uh, because we don't want to say that faith is purely rational. If we mean by that, that faith can be totally explained by rational argument. The classic Catholic account is that faith cannot be totally explained by rational argument. But it doesn't mean that faith is irrational or irrational, but rather that it is super rational or supernatural. Okay, so there are some, uh, some basic false dichotomies that maybe I can identify at the beginning and then very briefly explain why uh, the Catholic understanding of faith doesn't fall into them. The first is uh, skepticism which we're very uh, accustomed to, to talking about. Uh, faith is contrary to reason. We've already sort of been talking about that in the domain of science. Um, there's an opposite error, which is a kind of mirror image of this, which you sometimes encounter uh, even among some uh, Christians. It's more typical of uh, some strands of Protestantism, and that's what we would call fideism, that accepts the, the skeptical critique that faith and reason are opposed, and it just decides, rather than going with reason, it, it decides it's going to go with faith. So we throw out everything that science says, and we just believe what the Bible says, because the Bible is, is more reliable. Reformers like Martin Luther, by the way, thought that reason was so corrupted that we could no longer trust it. And that's why you can find a kind of justification in some uh, strands of Protestantism for being very skeptical of reason, and therefore just falling back on the kind of unwavering trust of faith. Okay, another corollary of this view is that faith really is just a feeling or something purely subjective. It doesn't really give you uh, something that can be discussed publicly. And that is a challenge for any Christian in the university, I think. Finding a way to not be trapped into saying, well, this is only true for you, or it's true for me, it's just something purely personal or interior or private, but saying, actually, there is a kind of public dimension to the claims of faith that is accessible in principle, uh, even if it's above reason. Those are some uh, mistakes about faith. Uh, So what is faith? from a Catholic perspective. So I'm going to just go very quickly here. Um, But uh, Aquinas says that faith is not a feeling. It is rather, and he uses here a definition from St. Augustine, a famous definition, that faith is thinking with assent. Thinking with assent. Okay, so I can use a, a brief example to illustrate uh, what this means, what is the, the peculiar character of faith. Suppose that um, you had a brother who was a journalist, and he went to cover uh, the um, war in Syria and Iraq with ISIS and so forth. 
and he's captured by ISIS and held prisoner for months. Incommunicado. You don't know whether he's alive or dead. You don't know how he's doing. And suppose one day somebody knocks on your door and says, I too was prisoner, held prisoner for months by ISIS, and I was in the same cell as your brother, and they just released me, and I come to tell you, I, I bring you a message from your brother. He's doing fine, and he tells you not to worry about him, and so forth. Okay, this, this happened a few years ago, actually. Something very like this. Now, what would you do if you hear this kind of story? Uh, obviously, you care very much whether th- what this uh, person is telling you is true. It makes a huge difference to you when it's true. And you probably would try to assess, is this person credible? Does he seem to be a journalist? Maybe you could check up on that. You might be able to determine whether he had, in fact, been in Iraq and been held a prisoner. Uh, does he know things about your brother that only your, your brother would know? But suppose after checking up on it and determining that he is credible, you're sitting across the dining room table from him and you say, well, what you say is very interesting and I'm inclined to think that it's probably true. But you see, I have no way of, of checking it myself. What would his reaction be? It would probably be something like, well, you don't believe me. And he would be right. Because if you were to believe him, you would have to say, I accept what you say as true. Not as likely true, but I assent to what you say. I assent without reservation. That's what it means to believe. So this example is helpful because it illustrates a few things, just on the natural level of believing. That believing involves knowing something. You really come to know something, but you know something not by way of your own sight. You know it by way of someone bearing witness to you about it. And then you determine not only that it's credible, that it's probably true, but you assent to it without reservation. So there's a difference between saying, it's 99, I think it's 99% likely that it's true, and saying, I just accept it as true. And when you accept it as true, you have a new relationship with the witness who you trust. Okay, now, Aquinas thinks that we do this kind of natural believing all the time when you believe that a city you've never visited really exists. It's reasonable to do that. No, no one here who hasn't visited Istanbul probably doubts that that is really a city in Turkey. It would be unreasonable to doubt it, even though you haven't been there. But even more than that, no one here can remember the day of your birth. I mean, how do you know your birth date? You have to rely on the witness of other people. And even something as fundamental as who your parents are Now, in theory, you could have a genetic test done, but I bet very few people in this room have genetically tested your parents to verify that they're really your parents. Uh, And yet, it's very reasonable for you to to believe that they really are your parents. Or 
that your mother loves you. I mean, I believe that my mother loves you. Is she, has she just been conning me all these years? Uh, I don't think so. The only way I can really know what she, whether she loves me is by believing what she tells me. I mean, there, there can be other signs, of course. I mean, after this lecture, you might say, hey, Father, great, I'd like to talk. And you might be lying through your teeth. How do I really know? Uh, it probably happens often after Mass. You know, the people coming out and say, hey, nice homily, Father. You know? <laughs> We're not unaware of that reality. You know? um, so uh, to know what you are really thinking, on a certain level, I have to believe what you say. So it's a natural phenomenon. And when someone is a credible witness, it's reasonable to believe. All the more so, then, when we're talking about knowing something supernatural about God, which we could not know from our own power. So something like that God is a person, that in fact God is three persons, that God loves you, that God wants you to be in a relationship with him, that God is willing, was willing, to die so that you could be in relationship with him. Knowing those kinds of things, you, you cannot simply come to know them by a study of cosmology or biology or physics or history, but only by the revelation of faith, where, in a way, God speaks to you and you believe him. So believing God is reasonable. It really gives you some knowledge about God, but it is not a knowledge based on your own vision. It's based on you trusting the witness who tells you about this. And that witness is, first of all, God, and secondly, say, the apostles or the church, bearing witness to, say, the mystery of God or the mystery of Christ. So from a Catholic perspective, that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It can't be reduced to reason, but it is reasonable. And it is not in conflict with uh, what we learn about God from science or what uh, the other things that, that science wants to investigate. So uh, there's a lot more that could be said on that score, but I think maybe I will just uh, leave it there and maybe there'll be time for some questions if people have questions, if you want to go further, if you think that uh, I've given a crummy talk and you want to say that, um, reveal the secrets of your heart, you know, uh, about that. Um, or if you have objections. Actually, that's a great question, and you know, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even anticipate that question, although it's an obvious question, I should have thought about it before, before coming here. I'm not an expert in the historical controversy over Galileo, although I have uh, had a number of conversations with some people who have done a lot of research in that area. So there's a um, historian of science named Bill Carroll, who teaches at Oxford, who has uh, actually written a short, it's not really a book, it's like a 
It's like a long article. It's a book, like a, an article-length treatment of this. And his argument is, uh, is basically that uh, there, were, um, there were mistakes on, on both sides. And in fact, the church was not condemning Galileo for a scientific claim. But uh, it's, it was with respect to a theological claim. So there was, there was a dispute over a theological point. So uh, there, Galileo was, in a way, claiming more than just uh, making a scientific claim. Uh, but there, that doesn't exculpate some... In, and there was a big fight in the church, including a fight between um, some religious orders, the Dominicans among them, uh, and I believe if, if you study the history, the Dominicans actually come out uh, looking pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the history of the church's interest in uh, cosmology, just to take cosmology, for example, goes back very far. Uh, so, the, um, you know, there's a Vatican observatory. I, I know the scientist who's a Jesuit a brother who runs the Vatican observatory. Um, there is... Is he an MIT uh, grad? Yeah. Um, Guy Conselmagno is his name. Uh, the Vatican has the, the largest collection of meteorites in the world, he claims. Um, and it's been collecting them for hundreds of years. So the, it's, a, it's often a kind of polemical portrayal of that episode. Uh, but I have to confess that I don't have all the all the answers uh, about the details there. You say that even the conflict was unique, because I think the typical perception is that the church hated science for you know, almost 2,000 years, and all of a sudden is in favor of it, or is trying to look good by sounding like it's in favor of it. What would you say? Yeah, I think that's just fundamentally false, and it's, it's verifiably false if you go back and, and study uh, the history. So, and there are now better uh, studies of that. It's a kind of polemic that came out of the Enlightenment period where um, there was a... Uh, conscious rejection of the authority of the church for a variety of reasons, some of them philosophical, some of them political even. And um, that rejection, so there was a polemic involved in saying that the church was against free inquiry or, or something like that. But in fact, uh, there always were robust uh, scientific investigations. The universities were started by the church. Um, there was, now, I have not, it's been a long time since I've read this uh, article. This was years ago, but it's very interesting. So I, I don't hand it on to you as established fact, but this is a vague recollection of something that I read. It was in the uh, historical study that had been done um, in England on the uh, Trappist abbeys that had been suppressed by Henry VIII in the 16th century. And what the archaeologists discovered, if I'm remembering correctly, is the, um, they, they discovered uh, alloys that could only be made with a very high temperature blast furnaces and with a lot of skill. And in fact, what they discovered is that because at that time you did not have organized workforces in the same way you have corporations today, which organize large numbers of employees on a common project, that the, the Trappists, because they had a lot of monks and because they were in communication with Trappist abbeys all around Europe, they had begun to develop some early industrial technologies. And so the speculation was if Henry VIII had not suppressed the monasteries, the Industrial Revolution would have happened in England maybe several hundred years earlier. It's very interesting. Um, so, I mean, monasteries have traditionally been places of 
real um, experimental inquiry. Uh, Albert the Great would be another figure uh, that we could talk about, you know, from the 13th century. Yes. Um, thank you so much for your talk, Father. Would you mind just um, elaborating a little bit on the distinction between um, the third and the fourth causes that you mentioned, the contingent cause, and then a human, a free human cause? Well, as best I understand it, Aquinas uh, considers free causes a kind of contingent causes. Um, but we could think about just, um, I mean, I think like an animal appetite. Animals have appetites, right? Your dog has appetites for food and for water and for chasing after cats or, or maybe chasing after cars or, or whatever. And it's hard uh, to, I mean, in the, the limit cases, I mean, if you just think of like the rat in the maze and he has to make a choice, uh, you know, it, there, we may be able to predict in general more, you know, seven times out of ten, the rat goes this way. But in any particular case, are we going to be able to predict with absolute certainty which path uh, the rat is going to choose or what your dog is going to choose to do when you, when you come home? There's a certain uh, indetermination there, which is contingent. It can't just be uh, reduced to like a, 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 um, an absolute physical determinism. Now there are some, uh, I mean there have been some scientific theories that try to have a kind of determinism. My understanding is in general in like among physicists today that is considered a rather uh, naive view uh, that that kind of hard determinism no longer holds. That There is a real indetermination at the quantum level and in fact Aquinas has an accounting for that. So free Human freedom is of, an, is of an even higher level than an animal appetite, like a rat's choice or a, a dog's choice, because it proceeds from your mind's understanding of what is good. So you can even transcend, like eating the chocolate cake. Your dog has a hard time resisting the, uh, you know, the steak. But you can say, the steak is not good for me, so I'm not going to eat it. Um, I rarely make that kind of choice myself, but, um, but in theory, I'm capable of it. Uh, so, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think I was wondering uh, if it was more I didn't quite hear what uh, you say, governed by instinct? Yeah, okay, so instinct actually is also a very interesting uh, subject. It's rather mysterious, you know, when we try to explain instinct. So we can talk about instinct in higher animals, you know, like a dog, which has a higher cognitive capacity, or sensitive capacity at least. Um, and then in uh, much lower, you know, much lower organisms, like insects, bees. I mean, bees are displaying highly organized activity in the hive. It's very hard for us to explain that based on like the bee brain, you know, um, or the bee, whatever, neuro I don't know anything about the neurology of, of bees. Maybe somebody in the, in the room does know something about that. But it's very hard for us to explain that. Aquinas says that you can only ultimately explain that by, I mean, it's clearly ordered and very sophisticated. 
So there, there must be a principle of order somewhere in the causality there. And he thinks that actually God has established a kind of pattern that the, the bee is following. Now, how that works on a biological level, I think, is still hard to say. But it's interesting to, to observe that when we say instinct, it's not a very... I mean, we're just kind of labeling a phenomenon. We're not really explaining it. And I don't know if there's been work done in biology that goes further to explaining it, but I... Um, so if I may, when you kind of make that distinction between like a human freedom and a contingent freedom, I guess, because I, I could see people seeing that as kind of a, a mathematical, I guess, there's a mathematical argument to be made that they're the same. Uh, like if you can essentially encapsulate human action in a predictable way on a statistical basis, they would say that there's no distinction between the, the human concept of freedom and the like more grand contingent freedom or contingent cause causality, which I guess then would reduce all human freedom to essentially a form of, of the, the contingent causality. So I guess ultimately the question is, is there any contention that the human freedom in a particular way deviates from this mathematical reality or is there any reason that it should or can it pretty much look the same but is fundamentally essentially different? Uh, that's a good question and I may not be up to completely answering it but here's my instinct um, which is that uh, I think when you're trying to do like a statistical modeling of human behavior I don't know you're you're uh, an app developer and you want to, you know, you're trying to figure out when are people going to order pizza or when are they going to order an Uber or whatever. You can, you can probably figure out patterns and it may actually be, the data may be really interesting and give you uh, real power to plan your business model to take advantage of those, those things. And it's pretty reliable. You know, so people, yes, individual, individuals deciding when they're going to order pizza or call an Uber, that's a, that's a contingent decision on an individual basis, but aggregate them all and you can come up with a reliable uh, prediction. But um, in a way, what it seems like what is happening there is um, an observation of, uh, of patterns, but not an explanation of the cause. So the, uh, on an individual level, it remains the decision of a, of a person. Now, maybe even a person with really, imp I mean, it may just be like an animal desire. You know, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm getting a pizza. Sure. Um, and all of us have probably worked on that level, you know, at that level at a certain point in our lives. You know, babies uh, do this more than college students, but college students still do it sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, so, so in that sense, we'd be, like, we'd be like other animals that are just acting on physical desires. But we also have something higher in us which is a real spiritual faculty. So to love somebody, and I don't just mean to be in love with somebody, but to say, to choose to give up a real good for the sake of my beloved. Um, that, is, that is a pretty noble thing. Or, uh, you know, to, uh, to give your life to God. Not a lot of people do that, actually. There aren't that many people walking around in habits like this. Um, but it's a wonderful choice to make. I can bear, bear witness to you uh, uh, of that. It's, a, it's maybe not the statistical norm. Um, 
But how to explain that or to account for the causality there within the world, I don't think you can just um, come up with a mathematical or physical explanation of that. And I think we have time for just one more question. Yeah. You distinguished, um, I guess, like what you call, I think, what you call primary and secondary causes. Uh, I guess secondary causes being ones that you can study, or in the universe, you can study with empirical science. Um, and, and then distinguishing the action of God as primary in the sense of the kind of uh, ontological dependence. Um, but I guess I'm wondering if, if you have to add to that in order to, to like accommodate um, like the action of God we read about in the gospel. Yes, so miracles, for example. That's an excellent question. I had, uh, it was a question for me whether to include that in the talk, and I excluded it just uh, for the sake of time. But it is possible, and we, do, we, do, we would account for occasions where God does act as both a first and a second cause. So he can act in the world, as, a, as sort of act directly in the world, uh, without the mediation of other creatures, like um, you know, Jesus miraculously healing someone of a grave illness or raising someone from the dead. Uh, so that would be an occasion of a miracle. It's not um, a violation of the principle of secondary causality because God is uh, the cause of all secondary causes and he can, just, he can just add to those secondary causes by himself acting directly as a secondary cause. Does that explain the... Well, I guess, um, I guess what I mean is, is, is this kind of direct action implied when you say that God is, is, is a prime mover, or if that's like, uh, yeah, is this, is this uh, philosophically implied when you say that God is a prime mover? Like no, I don't think it's philosophically implied, but it is possible. Um, you know, so as a Christianity especially attests to miracles. It's a distinctive feature, actually, of Christianity vis-a-vis -vis other major world religions is the the claim about miracles and the, the centrality of miracles. So for Christianity, it is important to have an account of how God can act directly in the world uh, in a way akin to a, a creaturely cause. But it doesn't mean that first causality is the same as second causality. It just means that sometimes God, God is always asking, acting as a first cause and on, on certain occasions he acts also as a secondary cause. But that's like a, a kind of bonus, you know? Um, in other words, it, it doesn't deny the reality and the integrity of secondary causes that science can study. It's just saying that there, there are some things that come from outside of the system uh, because God is, is outside. Well, with that, uh, another one. Thank you.